I know. To those of you who I do know, we know one another and love one another, I want to say thank you. Um, <clears throat> the, the wonder of the family of God <clears throat> displayed through the unity of spirit over these last three months has been remarkable. Um, to see the Good Shepherd care for us and lead us through a time of prayerfully considering whether or not Bill and Christine should accept a call to Texas, loving them in that, caring for them in ways I'm sure beyond my knowledge through prayers and conversations and hugs and tears. God is among us, and he's showing that in you, family. So I want to say thank you for that. I want to say thank you in particular for last weekend, all the guys that got together on Saturday to load up their pods. Incredible. Sunday, you saw what Sunday morning was like, and then you saw what those of you who were here, what Sunday evening was like. Just a wonderful time of fellowship and love and community. Um, I know Bill and Christine felt it. I know that I felt it. Um, my family is thankful for your love in that way, and I know the Penaltos are as well. Um, so, from here, we continue on. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. This is what we do every Sunday morning. We open God's word, and we see what he has for us to hear from him. It's on page 884, if you want to open it up in the Pew Bible in front of you. We've been in Luke since, well, we actually started it last Advent when we preached the very beginning of it before Christmas 2021, and then we restarted it again on March 20th, and today will be our final Sunday in Luke. Before we get into it, let me pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this morning, Lord, we present ourselves to you, Father, asking that you would visit us, asking with hope and with faith, knowing that you do and you are. We thank you that your Holy Spirit resides in every believer. Your Holy Spirit resides in the church. And so, Lord, we look forward to you opening up your word to us this morning and every Sunday until you return. And we pray specifically for Bill as he begins his ministry at First Baptist Salado this morning. I think he's already done preaching now, Lord. You know that, obviously. I pray that you would empower with fruit the outflow of that sermon this morning. And that as that body anticipates what you will do there, they would rejoice. They would wait with longing and that you would answer their prayers. We ask that for Edgewater as well this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke is a letter of discipleship. From one discipler to a disciple. Luke writing to Theophilus. He starts off the letter of Luke by addressing Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus 
interestingly enough, meaning lover of God. And he tells Theophilus, this is the reason that I'm going to give you an orderly account of all that has happened. I need to give you this orderly account because you need certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What has Theophilus been taught up to this point? Honestly, we don't know. But it seems that Theophilus, this lover of God, was a Christian. That he had heard the gospel and trusted by faith in Christ. But perhaps he only knew part of the story. He knew enough of the gospel for the Spirit to give him new life, but he did not know the rest of the story. Well, that's what Luke is. It's the rest of the story for Theophilus. To which we would ask the question, but why did Theophilus need certainty? Luke says, I'm I'm doing this so that you may be certain about the things you have been taught. Why does he need certainty? Well, one, because the life of Jesus is amazing. You might even say unbelievable if you didn't know that it was true. Conceived, not by an earthly father, but by the Holy Spirit. Born to a virgin. Lived a sinless, perfect life. Displayed miraculous power. Irrefutable teaching that pointed to his deity, even as he was fully man. Though the trajectory of his life seemed to be pointing straight up to the kingdom of God. It was quickly snuffed as he was tried and crucified by sinful men. Then this Jesus, having been dead for three days, he came back to life and then presented himself as alive to more than 500 disciples over a period of 40 days. Then this Jesus, physically alive, was physically lifted up from among his disciples in their sight and ascended to heaven. If you didn't know it was true, you wouldn't think it was true. The life and ministry of Jesus was amazing, and the life of Jesus is costly. And Theophilus likely already knew this. Any certainty that he would gain from being discipled by Luke's gospel would aid in understanding that Jesus is worth it. As we conclude, Luke, with chapter 24 here, I want to tell you some things. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety in a few minutes. But I want to give you some things to have your eyes open for as I read it. Two different sections. This first section is this. What are the things that Theophilus, hearing just this chapter, can be certain of? One, Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. Two, Jesus Christ interpreted all of Scripture to be about him. Three, Jesus Christ confirmed the necessity of his death and his resurrection. Four, Jesus Christ expected that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
Five, Jesus Christ established the disciples as witnesses of all they had seen. Six, Jesus Christ promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And seven, Jesus Christ physically ascended into heaven, promising his return. Now, Theophilus would have been on the back side of all of these things happening, okay? Similar to us. So in receiving Luke's letter, he would have been receiving certainty that these things certainly did happen. Now, if, you, if, you're, if your note writing was not fast enough to catch all seven of those certainties, it's okay. No worries. Let's go on to a second list that I want you to hear. You probably won't be able to note these either, but I just want these in your mind and heart as we read chapter, 20, or chapter 24. All of those seven certainties just from that one chapter that I just listed are dependent on the veracity, the truth, the yes it did happen-ness of the resurrection. Luke would agree with Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. In Numbers 1 through 7 of the certainties, Numbers 2 through 6 can only be certain if number 1 is certain. Jesus physically rose from the dead. So Luke provides evidence that Theophilus can certainly believe that Christ has been raised. Number 1, the tomb is empty. There is no body to be found. Number 2, women... Women with names that are named in chapter 24 are the first witnesses. To which you may say, why does that matter? Let me read to you a, a short portion from um, Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. McLaughlin writes this, The fact that all four Gospels make the women central to their resurrection claim it appeals to us as 21st century readers. But it would have had the opposite effect on literate men in the Greco-Roman world like Theophilus. As Bauckham explains, women were thought by educated men to be gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive religious practices. The second century Greek philosopher Celsus was voicing what many of his contemporaries would have thought when he took aim at Mary Magdalene. Celsus writes, After death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. And who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. From Celsus's perspective, Mary Magdalene and the other weeping women who witnessed Jesus' so-called resurrection were a joke. Yet, if the, if the gospel authors had been making up their stories, they could have made Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus the first resurrection witnesses, two well-respected men involved in Jesus' burial. The only possible reason for the emphasis on the testimony of women and weeping women at that is if they really were the witnesses. The tomb is empty. Women are named as the first witnesses. Number three, apostles and disciples are named. They're called the eleven. Those would be the apostles. And then also Cleopas 
and Simon. And they're named, described, by Jesus in particular, as foolish and slow of heart. They're seen over and over again just in this chapter as unbelieving and ignorant. This is not something that you would say about yourself if you were fabricating this story. It's not flattering. Number four, Jesus presents himself as physically alive and bodily able. And number five, Jesus assigns a radical identity to his disciples, witnesses. He says, you'll be called a lot of things, and you are a lot of things. But as I send you out, which is the meaning of apostle, as I send you out, your primary identity, and you can see it throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is that you are witnesses of the resurrection. There's no more extreme identity than that. No wiggle room in their witness. They were witnesses of someone coming back to life from the dead. So let's read chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village called, named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned, condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. 
They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talk, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, were marveling, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem 
with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so Luke's first letter to Theophilus concludes offering certainty to a disciple who needed it. But what if Theophilus was online? What if he lived in our day and age, 2,000 years removed from a letter of certainty? Having heard the stories, having celebrated Easter, worn his best pastel suit, maybe took some theology classes, understood that our union with Christ guarantees us that we will one day rise with him. What if these things were all certainties to him, but they become dull? His heart had been quieted. The amazing costliness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ had been muted. And he was spending hours a week online. That might describe you. I know it describes me. Why do I bring the online thing into the conversation this morning? Because online we are witnesses to so many events. So many ideas. So many declarations. So many defamations. So many constant claims of certainty. What if Theophilus was discipled by the internet? where he learned that pretty much the only thing you can really believe seems to believe that you really can't believe anything. That the only certainty is uncertainty. What if you and I were discipled by the internet? You and I are discipled by the internet. That does not mean that it's always Christ discipleship that's happening. Discipleship is about loving and learning. Yes, by God's grace, we continue to love and learn Christ. But you and I know that a week online presents a lot of other things to learn and love. If there was one tweet that I could delete forever, this would be a worthy candidate. In June, a so-called theologian tweeted this out. He said, in the Gospels, Jesus is asked 187 questions. He answers maybe eight of them. He himself asks 307 To which this so-called theologian says, maybe faith isn't about certainty, but learning to ask and sit in the complexity of good questions. The reason I know about this is because I've seen this reposted by a lot of people. 
something like this, a statement like this, something that seems to be so certain in its interpretation of Jesus' teaching style, is meant to somehow appreciate Jesus while simultaneously discrediting the authority of his words. To leave what he said as open to interpretation. Let's just sit in the complexity. And what it does, it sows doubt instead of certainty. Is this what Jesus intended by asking his, eight, his 307 questions? I'll take his word for it that he's numerically accurate. Is that what Jesus intended? Not at all. Jesus is the teacher of all teachers. The word made flesh. The discipler of disciples. He is God perfectly revealed in flesh, deed, and speech. If he can't make himself clear, there's no clarity to be had in all of history or any clarity that actually matters. He intends to be understood. Yes, Jesus did ask a lot of questions. The most skillful teachers do. But he intends for his listeners to ponder him as the capital A answer to find certainty in him. So I would like to revisit chapter 24 because there are three questions that are super important asked in the text that are intended for all disciples of Jesus to consider and to find confidence, certainty in the amazing, costly life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Question number one. We find by the empty tomb, verse five. And as the women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men... These angels said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Allow that question to resonate in your heart for a moment. Why do we seek the living among the dead? This is a question for every human. This is our predisposition to try to find life in things that are dead. Because ultimately, everything is dead. Aside from the one who is life. We are too often graveyard walkers. Wandering around a cemetery called the good life. We're looking for life among gravestones. And those gravestones could very well be apps. Redfin. Instagram. Chase. Fox News. ESPN, Tinder. You all know the apps that are on your phones. 
the most clickable ones, the one where your thumb seems to go most easily, consider that your thumb in that moment is very possibly worshiping. It's digging in hard ground in a dark cemetery called the good life and trying to drum up life from a place that can never give it. We also look for life among dead people. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking specifically to you. You're thinking about marriage someday. You're thinking, what does it mean to find that person? And things can get confusing. Things can get pressing. You feel like you're getting older. You feel like you're not appreciated. You feel like he's just not around or she's just not around. And you begin digging at that gravestone of companionship. I need to find love because if I don't find love, I can't actually find life. It's backwards. You can't find love until you find life. And so we start looking. What, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll dig over here. Maybe she's down there. Maybe he's down there. All the while not truly considering, and I'm speaking to brothers and sisters here, that there is a fundamental change in the person who is born again. In the person who is regenerate. They are new creations in Christ. You can't mix new with the old. So stop, stop wandering around the graveyard. Stop digging for something that God says, me forbid that I help you with that search. We also look for life in our own dead hearts and our own dead works. This is just who I am. Just what I've always done. I just react to stress this way. I'm just an anxious person by nature. That's true. But not necessarily according to the new nature in Christ. But this is just, it's just me being me. Brother and sister, don't rest on you being you. That's not who you actually want. That graveyard is our hearts. That's why it seems so close and easy to get to. Because it's so close. So near. It's so easy to visit. Gussy it up a little bit with some of our some of our metaphorical flowers. Visit it. Sit by it. Say, I, I just think that sometime, though I've, though I've given lots to this, Sometimes something is going to spring up that is alive. Yet we're continually disappointed 
yet we continually visit the tombs. To which Jesus says, why do you look for the living among the dead? I am the living one. Nothing that you have looked for, security, love, belonging, wisdom, purpose, rest, joy, life can be found in those graves. There's only death there. But you will find all of those eternally in Christ. In me, he says. He is the resurrected one. In him is life. And his life is the light of men that will light up the graveyard. That will bring a beam into that cemetery and say, stop visiting the grave. Look at me. I'm standing right in front of you. Believe me. But you say the path to the graveyard, it's not very far. It's too well worn. Where else can I go? Paul writes in Romans 6.4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, we must get this right, Christians. We are fundamentally different creatures than we were. Christ promises that we are resurrected ones as he has been resurrected. Therefore, you want to look for life? Find other living ones. Find other living ones, also known as the church. The church is where living ones come together to remember that on their own they travel to the cemetery on Sundays. But in Christ, they travel to the empty tomb. And they travel there together, worshiping him and walking in newness of life. This is the fellowship of the redeemed, the fellowship of the newly alive. This is life. Look for the living one among the living ones. Question number two. Was it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is verse 26. Here he's in Emmaus. I guess he's almost to Emmaus. Was it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? To which, two questions for us to consider. Do you personally believe that it was necessary? Don't escape that word. Necessary. Not many things in life are necessary. Food and water. And companionship. Other than that, those are the necessary things. We might say, when we, we wake, oh, I need a cup of coffee. Okay, you might, to be able to think with some clarity. However, you're not going to die in a half an hour if you don't have that cup of coffee. 
You might die in a half an hour, but not because you didn't have the coffee. I'll make that clear. Do you personally believe that it was necessary, as Jesus says himself, for Jesus to suffer and to die for you? God made it clearly necessary in Genesis 3 when he curses the serpent after Adam and Eve's sin, thereby spreading sin to all the rest of the humanity. When God proclaims the good news that one day an offspring of Eve would indeed be bruised by Satan, he would suffer and die. But that same offspring would crush Satan's head. The prophet Isaiah saw it as clearly necessary. Yet it was the will of God to crush him, Isaiah wrote. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Jesus sees it as clearly necessary at the end of this chapter when he tells all the apostles that repentance and forgiveness, excuse me, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And the 24 elders in Revelation will sing it as having been clearly necessary when they sing, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. So do you, in light of the evidence of the scriptures, believe that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to die for you. This would require you humbly saying, I am a sinner that needed someone to die for me. And not just a someone, but someone who lived a perfect life so that he could then take my place. He could then atone for my sin. He could then pay my debt. He could then set me free from the tomb that I have been living in. If you do not believe that it was necessary, I urge you to today. To believe that it was necessary. To believe that you need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. I am proclaiming to you in his name right now that each and every human in the history of the world needs to repent. Needs to be forgiven of their sin. And that includes all of us. But that's not where Jesus ends the question. He also says, suffer these things and enter into his glory. So do you personally believe that Jesus Christ has entered into his glory? Consider where you think he is right now. For Luke, the resurrection and the ascension are distinct but linked events. Jesus was raised, proving that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. This is vindication. His death was not because of his own sin. His death had a purpose. Redemption, forgiveness, to redeem a people for God, as the 24 elders will sing. 
However, Jesus not only was raised, he was further raised. Raised and further raised at the ascension to sit today at the right hand of power. That's what he tells the teachers when he's on trial. One day, you're going to see me again. You're going to see me sitting at the right hand of the Father, the seat of power. And from there, Jesus, in the book of Acts, pours out the Spirit. From there, he rules and reigns and oversees the spread of his kingdom. From there, he intercedes for his brothers and his sisters. I died for him. I died for her. His blood is sufficient. From there, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is alive today. And just as he poured out his blood, he has poured out his spirit upon his resurrected and glorified church. See, also, we have been raised with Christ and already, already, in a, in a way that only God knows how, we are already seated with Christ. We have also been ascended, church. And one day we will further ascend when he returns and we meet him in the clouds and welcome him back to his kingdom. That's a day to look forward to if he is our king. Question number three. You probably know which one it is. Verse 38. Now he's with the whole crew in Jerusalem. They're startled, thinking they've seen a spirit. And Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Does it encourage you that the apostles and the disciples had some doubts? It should encourage you. It encourages me. But I would also say this. They didn't remain doubtful. They had doubts. They had questions. They didn't remain in a perpetual state of doubtfulness. Let me encourage you. If that question applies to you, why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? First of all, what is the root of those doubts? Do you not trust your resurrected king? Andy, do you not trust your resurrected king? Do you not truly believe that he is truly alive and he is truly ascended and he truly lives and reigns and providentially rules over every single aspect of my life? in our church's life, and everything in the world for all of history, past, present, and future. Of course he does. So where is there room for our hearts to be troubled? And you might say, well, I need to answer my doubts with belief. Yes, use reason. There's a place for it. This is a great book to look for it. She also has another book called Confronting Christianity, which I have not read, but is well-received. Rebecca McLaughlin is the author's name again. So use reason, yes. Try to find some answers to those. But I would also encourage you in this. Consider your posture. Consider your posture. Is it a posture of trust rather than skepticism? 
we always know how body language can, can speak a lot, right? If I got up here and I was like this, you wouldn't be expecting very much, okay? What is your body language towards the gospel? Do you have a posture of trust rather than skepticism? Do you see his body with its, both here locally and worldwide, with its inconsistencies, with its sin, with its not quite yet fully cleansed, ready as a bride for her groom? Do you see that, but still have a posture of trust that that groom is indeed returning for her? And does that give you certainty in Christ? The Christian faith is inherently supernatural. So you and I will never ultimately reason ourselves to a place where we answer questions of belief that pertain to an eternal, supernatural God with only reason, with only finite understanding. True faith in a supernatural God is only available from the supernatural himself. Thus, as we read here, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written. Jesus is the one who gives faith. We are never called, we are not called to never have doubts. And we're also not called to like refuse reasonable answers. We have a reasonable faith. But ultimately, we are called to believe Jesus Christ, his person and his finished work at the cross, his resurrection his ascension, and his current reign. So I would say to you, believe. Believe him. Well, I don't have all my questions answered. Believe him. I don't know if I can. Then ask him to help you understand and to believe. Plead with him. Give me understanding. I need to know your ways. I'm sensing that life can only be found in you, but I keep stumbling about in the graveyard. Rescue me, O oh God. Shine your beam of light and show me the way out to you. Because there's a reason that Jesus, when he enters this room, says peace to you. Because there is truly peace a place where your doubts, your doubtfulness, I'll say that, your doubtfulness can be put permanently aside. Because Jesus says there can truly be peace with God through me. I'm alive, which means what I did on the cross works. You are forgiven. So brother and sister, Remember this morning, you are forgiven. 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 
This is true of every single person who the Holy Spirit has redeemed. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your finished work at the cross. We thank you that you are truly real. We can be certain of that. We can approach your throne boldly in our times of needy doubt, our times of needily finding ourselves in the graveyard again, the times when we wonder if we actually have peace with you. You are the answer. Yes, we have peace with you through faith in you. Yes, there is a place to find life among the living ones worshiping you. Yes, we are forgiven because of you. Oh God, oh God, give us understanding that is beyond our heads. Give us understanding that reverberates in our hearts where certainties through the work of your Spirit become convictions where those convictions carry us out in the power of the Spirit, where we truly can say, I am a witness to the resurrection because He has resurrected me. But God, this can only be the case if Your Spirit continues to reverberate in us. We ask that He would. As we break the bread now, Jesus, would we see you? See your broken body. Believe in your shed blood together. In your name we pray. Amen.